0: everybody, it's Tony Robbins. Listen, we have a really important program for you today. Holler out to us, shout out to all of you that I know are dealing with all kinds of stresses with the whole world being shut down. We have like 200, whatever the number of people, billion people that are shut down into their homes. And there's so much fear and there's so much uncertainty. And so the purpose of this particular program is to bring you some of the best experts in the world who can help you put this in context. Because a lot of what we've heard and a lot of the decisions we've made has been based on numbers that were projected to be accurate and haven't been accurate, unfortunately. No one's done anything wrong. Everybody's trying to protect our society, protect our world. And in so doing, there may be some overprotection. And so just like if you go hear a medical diagnosis today, most human beings know you should get a second opinion. Today, we're gonna have some experts who are super qualified to be able to talk in this area because it's a pure expertise. Try and give you a context of what we've learned and where we really are. Maybe dispel some of the fear. But then the majority of the time we really wanna talk to you is what are some of the solutions that are coming out that are true breakthroughs that can make a difference with this COVID 19 situation. And who's gonna, we're gonna have a couple guests, but who's gonna be my partner today as my partner in real life, which is Peter Diamandis, who's my dear, dear friend, and we're partners together. He's the head of the X Prize, he created the X Prize. Most of you in my audience know who he is. He's the executive founder of Singularity. He's you know multiple New York Times number one bestseller with Bold and Abundance and Bold Capital Partners. I mean, there's so many companies, I couldn't list them all. But uh, Peter's joining us now. We're doing this all by Zoom because we're all trapped in our individual locations. So Peter, hello, thanks for joining me, brother. And Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, brother, a pleasure. And, and yeah, it's a welcome, it's a pleasure to welcome everybody as well. And, and during this time, we're all, you know, trying to understand what's going on with this pandemic because it's both a viral pandemic and it's a pandemic of fear. And people are talking about what are the diagnostics available? What are the antivirals available? What are the vaccines available? More importantly, what are the therapeutics available? And we have an incredible guest um, that Tony will introduce in a second, who's another brother and a partner with us, one of the smartest people that we know, but want to contextualize what we're going to be speak about uh, during the course of this hour plus. Uh, the first is, let's talk about what's truly going on around the world in terms of what are the real numbers? Uh, how fearful should you be? How hopeful or optimistic should you be that this might be over soon? it's not as bad as people think it is. But the meat of this program is going to be a therapeutic uh, treatment for for COVID, for viral infections that you might not have heard about. And it's a concept of cellular medicine. So we're going to be talking about how do you augment your immunity with natural killer cells and with stem cells. Uh, An extraordinary scientist, physician, and CEO is with us. Uh, Tony, you want to go ahead and introduce
0: Yes, and I just want to say, in this particular show, we may divide this in two, to be honest, so we'll decide as it's here, but we're also going to bring you some people who are on the most advanced areas of testing. You've all heard about antibody testing. Many people are saying this is the only way we really get back to work, uh, because the current tests that you're doing swabs on, we'll go into this a little bit later in the show here, they're, first of all, not super accurate, a lot of false positives, but most importantly, it only tells you that you might have the virus now. It doesn't tell you If you develop antibodies, in fact, if your body is now, your immune system is strong and it'll fight off the virus, we don't have to worry about it. You're free to go back to your normal life. And so it's pretty important as well as a similar company that is working on a vaccine that's worked in this industry for more than 30 years, but a vaccine that may be accelerated in its tempo, not 18 months away, simply because the source of vaccine as we'll walk through with them doesn't actually use the virus itself. So it's not so dangerous, but we'll get into that as well. So it's a solution oriented show. But we want to start by introducing, let's throw up on our screen before we show his real face, just his background. Dr. Bob Howry, MD, PhD. Bob is an incredible neurosurgeon. He's a biomedical student. He's a high-performance aviator. He's a serial entrepreneur in two technology sectors, in biomedicine and aerospace, both. He's truly a renaissance man. And he's our dear friend and partner. But I got a hold of Bob uh, originally through Peter and I when I tore my rotator cuffs and kind of started on this journey of understanding cellular therapy because they were torn so badly during this this snowboarding accident that literally uh, the doctors, three different doctors, you have to have surgery, surgery immediately, the pain was incredible. And then the problem was the rehab, the three to six months of rehab where I wouldn't be able to clap, move, and do things I do. And Bob was the one who taught me the difference in the different types of stem cells in the world and cellular therapy and got me to the right type of treatment, the impact of which was one session, no exaggeration, and my rotator cuffs is absolutely perfect. I can do everything I want to do. I had no downtime. I mean, it was life-changing to me, life-changing to me. So that entered me into this whole area of really looking at the the change that's happening in medicine today and finding out as much as I could about cellular therapy. Bob is the chairman and founder and chief executive officer of Cellularity. It's one of the world's leading human cellular, cellular therapeutic companies, and he's a pioneer in stem cells and just A brilliant, brilliant guy, and he's also a straight shooter. So it's always fun to be with Bob. Bob, welcome to the program.
2: Tony, great to see you. And Peter, thanks for having me on. Beautiful,
1: buddy.
0: Great to be with you, man. Listen, let's start with context. I mean, you're up there in New York. You know, you see on the news every night. There's a red frame around everything. More people dying. More people diagnosed. You and I both know diagnosed doesn't mean a whole lot. It's who gets hospitalized. They put these huge numbers up, and no one's trying to do anything wrong. They're trying to inform people and. Unfortunately, using fear as the primary motivator, can you give us a little context about what's really happening in the trenches, where we stand, and and what the numbers were originally based on that all these formulas that made us shut down the world economy are from Wuhan versus what we're finding now?
2: Listen, we're living through an unprecedented uh, event in in global health. Um, Viruses come and go all the time. Pandemics happen with a great deal of frequency. Uh, What's unique about this particular Uh, uh, pandemic is the nature of the virus itself is somewhat different than what we are normally used to. uh, And the somewhat nefarious origins of the virus have left people to be both uh, um, on a, a hyper vigilant, hyper alert state, but also willing to react very aggressively to any negative news they hear. Now, the bottom line is the early evaluation and reports on the number of people who were infected and who had bad results from the infection was very alarming. Uh, When we, if you go back six to eight weeks ago, the number of people that were uh, shown to have the the virus and were getting really sick was alarming because this was somewhat unusual for conventional flu, at least the way conventional flu is reported. Now. The fact is that um, we really don't fully understand when this virus first made landfall here in the United States. Uh, there are some who speculate that it may have come, come here as early as last fall. A virus like this uh, has has characteristics that dictate its rate of spread. Some of those characteristics are how long can somebody be carrying it, and infected with it, where they don't have symptoms, yet they can still infect others. If that period is long, then one person can interact with many, many more people and potentially be a source of infection for those people. Flu, influenza, the incubation period is relatively short, which means if you got it, within a few days, a day or two, you're starting to have symptoms. You isolate yourself naturally from the crowd you're not infecting that many people, but if, if you can carry it for seven to 10 to 14 days, relatively asymptomatic, you may infect hundreds of people. And therefore the exponent, how many, people, how many people wind up ultimately get exposed is that much higher. It's very suspicious how quickly this particular viral infection affected many, many people. That's number one. Number two is that although the vast majority of people, probably 90% who are exposed and get infected actually have very mild or no symptoms at all. And these people don't even seek help of, of the physician or, 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 or a hospital. But a small percentage that are going to the, the hospital and are seen to have in fact been infected do develop very severe uh, um, uh, complications. Those complications can include difficulty breathing, uh, in some cases, necessitating being on a ventilator. And we're actually learning more and more that the ventilatory problems are not like a conventional pneumonia. They may, in fact, be far more more insidious. They may, in fact, involve the way oxygen gets across the lung into the blood, and even how the, the oxygen is carried in the bloodstream. That being said, for roughly every 100 patients who is so alarmed that that they go to the emergency room, 80 of them are sent home because they're not that sick. 20 wind up staying in the hospital. And of that 20, four to six of those get sick enough they have to be put in the ICU. So the numbers are not that alarming. But remember, when, when the news first carried the possibilities that this pandemic could affect millions and millions of patients, and when the lethality rate was originally estimated to be as high as 5%, you know everyone panicked. People, if your wife or your child or your brother or your mother started to develop symptoms, you ran to the emergency room. Most people with the with the amplitude of symptoms that they had, under normal circumstances, if this wasn't on the front page of every news, would stay home and rough it out. Exactly right. Right. But but in contrast, this was such such a call, a crisis call that people so were this, running...
0: this fear produced mass number of people going to the hospital who wouldn't normally go there, overran the hospitals. That's right. Certainly got in the way in certain countries like Italy and so forth, where they're able to operate normally and do what they normally do. But then also all that fear was really based on algorithms that came from an initial small group of people from China who were extremely ill, not understanding who might be infected as a whole. So we're used to the flu with 20 to 40 million people being infected in the U.S. alone every year and us having 35 to 80,000 deaths. Those are seen normal. This year, the CDC says we have 39 million people infected with the flu. There have been 29,000 deaths here in the United States in this exact time period. And we've had 200,000 hospital visits, but none of that gets reported because what's happening is what's new about this. We had zero cases and then we found the virus, and now we started testing for whatever. And as you know, Bob, wherever we test, we find more and more of it. But it's changing the morbidity or the death rate. Everything was based on these algorithms. That's what Dr. Fauci and everyone else did with the best intent of protecting us and going three and a half, four and a half, five percent death rate versus flu, which might be 0.1, two or three or four, less than a half a percent. And they decided to take giant action. You know, Dr. Fauci is a good man. He's worked his tail off. He's been around, you know, he's 70 plus years old. And he's been telling people up until now, because it was his best estimate, all these formulas, we all know bad, bad data in, bad data out, right? Algorithms don't, they're only as good as what you put in. These three, they four and a half percent morbidity rates they're talking about being far greater than the flu. He's now correcting that a week ago. This is New England Journal of Medicine, as you well know, one of the most respected journals in the United States. Let's read it together, March twenty-six. If one assumes that the number of asymptomatic meaning no symptoms, or minimally symptomatic cases is several times as high as the number of quarter cases, the case fidelity rate may be considerably less than one percent. That suggests that the overall clinical consequence of COVID-19 may also be more akin to those of a severe seasonal influenza, which means flu, versus SARS or MERS, which were at 9, 10 and 30 percent, six percent. Yet unfortunately, on the news he committed years, you know, weeks ago, 200,000 or two million people were going to die. And so he said it again, 200,000 probably. And they asked him in the news, you know, and reporters, you said 2 million. He goes, that's still possible. The numbers don't show that to be true right now. And yet people are scared and we're shutting down our economy on it. So I'd love your comments on these because these are facts. They're not they're not suggestions of some right wing conspiracy. This is not saying there's conspiracy. It's just saying people are trying to protect and maybe they've overreacted to something because it's so
2: new. What are your comments on this? So, you know, you hit on a lot of important points, let's go over a couple of them. First of all, what what has completely alarmed everyone is that early prediction that the death rate could be as high as 5%. Remember, 5% means one in 20 people die. It means that more than that actually gets sick, but one in 20 actually die. That means lots of people you know will die, right? Yeah. You know, point one based on the New York lethality. numbers, it should be 148,000 people. I just read the article. Right, right. Based on the original projection, and obviously it's not. But but, but influenza deaths, point one percent. That's one in a thousand. Okay. I, I bet you that very f- few of us can remember a friend or loved one who died of influenza. So so that five percent lethality rate that was originally quoted was the basis for everyone's reflexive and panicked response to this crisis. Now, you you mentioned something else which is very important. The data is being derived from numbers based upon certain test results, many of which are not reflective of of the biology. And let me explain that. The first test available was a a test for the presence of the virus, which is looking for the nucleic acids of the coronavirus itself. They swab the surface of your nasal mucosa. It's not a comfortable thing, but they do it. And then they measure whether or not you have the nucleic acids from this virus. That says you have what's called colonization by the virus. That doesn't equate to infection by the virus, okay? Those are two different things. The only way to determine whether you're really infected is to identify the virus inside you and you're sick. You're actually developing symptoms. So if all you're going to do is, is measure only the people who are symptomatic and if they're symptomatic, detect virus on them, and that is your case number, that becomes the denominator from which you calculate death rate. So you take right. the number of people who died over the cases that you discovered, and that's where they were coming up with this 3 4 5% death rate. That's not an accurate reflection, and it's not the way we calculate the death rate for flu okay just so you know the cdc you can go to the cdc website the cdc calculates the death rate for flu as the number of people who die divided by the estimated number of cases these are not documented demonstrated patients who have influenza it's what the government estimates it to be here's the problem i just sent you two graphs okay, okay. if you look at the first graph okay it's the it's the death rate it's the death rate here in the United States, which is, which was starting to drop. And the minute it started to drop, it pumped back up. And the reason it pumped back up is they started to attribute anyone who died in the hospital as, as from COVID. You know, that's, that's what's called statistical reassignment. Okay. It's a method that's used by people to get whatever they want. So if you're going to take someone who got to the hospital and died of a heart attack and then post-mortem, Swab his nose and find coronavirus and say, hey, he died of COVID. That's not, that's not accurate, right? When you, you see, you know, Mark Twain said there's three kind of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics, okay? I'm going to jump
1: in one second here, guys, just to add some context here as well. Um, the important thing for folks to realize is this, again, a pandemic, a viral pandemic, but this is also a pandemic of fear, in in it's created by misinformation and by people trying to actually do good right because we don't we we aren't panicking when someone dies from influenza but let me give some other numbers but we talk about the death rates going on from covid-19 and we're seeing numbers like you know peak at 600 a day, 800 a day, 1000 a day but here's some numbers to, to, to contextualize this globally tuberculosis Kills three thousand people every day. Every day. H- hepatitis, two thousand four hundred people. Um, you know, HIV/AIDS, twenty one hundred people. Malaria, two thousand people. So we have, you know, we A day, ch- every single day, every single day around the world. We're every- not, we're not shutting down everything all over the place. And many of those, uh, some of
0: those things are infectious as well.
1: And as bad as this is, and again, uh, for all of us, our, our hearts go out to people. And I know friends and, and, and guys, who have, who have uh, passed on this and who have been un- intubated on this, and it's, it's a terrible challenge. There is one uh, silver lining here uh, that's important to realize, uh, even, and I'll, I'll just say it, I think of this almost as a practice pandemic, um, in that this is not the first pandemic, there have been massively bad pandemics, and there will be ones in the future period, as we're encroaching on the environment, as temperatures rise, and all of those elements. We can talk about that if you want. But ultimately, this pandemic could have had the transmissibility that this particular you know uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus has with the mortality of an Ebola, right? People treat this like it's a death sentence when they, they oh, my God, I have COVID-19. Well, it could be a mild flu. It could be a bad flu. But imagine if it had a 50% mortality rate. And what this practice pandemic has done, and I'm gonna call it that not to diminish the massive financial hardship this has had, but it's uncovered all of the breakpoints in our financial system, our governance system, and our healthcare system that hopefully, if nothing else, we learn uh, how to repair those and not have that happen again. One other thing that it's doing and goes to the extraordinary work of my older brother from another mother here, Bob Hurri, Is it's causing and allowing the FDA to iterate faster because we've had a very slow, methodical, you know, it's a bureaucracy. And we are seeing, you know, again, diagnostics and uh, vaccines. We'll talk about that in part two of this, but also antivirals and also therapeutics, one of which, very proud, is uh, the brainchild of, of Bob Hurry.
0: The piece that we're trying to get across to you is that, yes, this is serious, but so is the flu, and that the people that are most affected by the flu are also the elderly. If you look in Italy and see all these people dying, 79% of them have died are over 90, right? Uh, literally 99% of the people who have the disease have some preexisting condition, and more than half have three, cancer, heart disease, diabetes. And Bob, maybe you can mention about what's been happening, because, well, let's put up what the Nobel Prize winner said from Stanford, he was talking about, he's been on the air talking about this. He said, we're trying to do modeling. We're trying to look at numbers and we're trying to understand what they're telling us. One problem with these tests is they're very sensitive. Small amounts, each year, but there's tiny amounts of the virus can be detected. So almost who? Everyone who dies, no matter what the cause, will have coronavirus, but that's not the reason it killed you. It didn't kill you. You could have died in a car accident and be having it. So he's arguing that we've overreacted. We shut down our economies based on those 5% projections which aren't even true. Fauci himself is saying it's less than one percent. Maybe it's the same as the flu. But we've now built an entire system of destruction of the economy. People are so afraid because they don't know what the real facts are. And I saw on one day in February where the death rate jumped 600 percent in a day. I'm like, you know, I'm not a genius virologist, but I know it's pretty hard for something to jump that much in a day. And so we went through the statisticians and Bob, I know you can comment on this because you've seen it they changed the rules of how they diagnose. You used to have to have a test to say you died of it. And they might put in the notes that, you know, they had symptoms or it was probable that it may have been brought on by COVID or the flu. Now they just count, they don't need any tests and they count it. So the numbers you're seeing that even seem high, they're not high in deaths, but even the death rate is not probably a fair representation. And Bob, maybe you can address that. The sensitivity of this, because the other thing we found is there's an article I'll throw up on the screen later. Um, we'll put in for it afterwards. I don't have it in front of me, but it's from 2014, and the title is "Where Did SARS Go," and the description is it's a coronavirus, and that you know that some colds and flus are driven by it, and that you know over time two thirds of us will end up having it. But as you said, Bob, we'll feel nothing, or we'll have. Mild symptoms that the people that are affected by it are those whose immune systems are compromised, which we're going to get to with you, Bob, with a solution. But those are compromised because of pre existing conditions. And before they would say they died of pneumonia or they died of cancer or they died of whatever, but now it's being pushed to it's a COVID death. So can you address that, Bob? Because you're in New York in the hospitals and you, you're sharing with me what you've seen.
2: So, you know, Professor Levitt is, is a brilliant scientist in his own right, and, but he's also very practical and reasonable. The reality is what he's saying is true. You can, you can create statistics that will fit any narrative. Okay? And you know, one doesn't doesn't, doesn't realize upfront, but the panic that was created because of the the um, forecasted lethality of this virus meant that people were flooding hospitals and overwhelming the healthcare system. What we were supposed to not do, remember, flatten the curve, flatten the curve, don't ever exceed the carrying capacity of the hospital. But by by instilling that panic, people went to hospitals, and by the way, the The people who went to the hospital and got sent home spent twelve to sixteen hours sitting in a place that was awash with more coronavirus right and so if you if you happen to if you happen not to have been had a big inoculum before, you spend twelve hours in the e r and you're going to go home with it and you're going to spread it around even more. The truth of the matter is that what concerns me is that it appears that that rather than take a conservative look at the numbers and provide true, realistic data and explain how you arrive at these numbers, we, we, there were times when people were saying the lethality rate may be higher than 5%. Look, I'm a father, I've got kids. Uh, I, I, you can imagine what would happen after you heard that news and your kid starts coughing you don't know if you're able to detect how, whether it's serious or not. So you go, to the, you go to the expert. When those experts are overwhelmed in a hospital, that's not a good thing. When those experts overwhelmed in the hospital, every time a patient starts to have evidence of these uh, these respiratory problems, they're in the ICU. And then the thresh, what we call the threshold for intervention, the threshold for intervention comes down, okay? Because you don't want people dying the docs and the docs and the nurses in the hospital are are absolute heroes the minute they see somebody starting to crash they they go all out and they're putting these patients on ventilators now we're learning that the ventilators may in fact be contributing to the problem because it's not a conventional pneumonia we didn't give ourselves time to figure this stuff out okay and you know it's sort of like you've we've all been through it right and Tony, where you live, uh, a hurricane's brewing in the in the Bahamas. Okay, and you're told it's going to be the worst hurricane in the history of, of of your your part of Florida. And what does everybody do? They run out and they tear apart every store. You can't get a you can't get a gallon of milk. You can't buy a loaf of bread. And then what happens? You get you cut. It comes and sweeps by. Everybody's fine. And what you've done is you've you've bruised the system for the foreseeable weeks ahead. Now. In this case, I listen. I, I would never want to be in Dr. Fauci's shoes, right? You have this thrown on your shoulders, and 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 his his greatest fear is if I underinform people, are people going to die unnecessarily? I think it was unfair to leave this all on the on the shoulders of one guy. What they should have done, since this is a mass casualty scenario, they should have enlisted multiple experts. They should have gotten trauma docs who deal with mass casualty stuff. They should have gotten more than just epidemiologists. They should have got intensivists and others who understand the practical nature of deploying care and said, hey guys, what what should we really be telling the public? Because I guarantee it would have been a more tempered, tempered type of description. Now, right now, what we know is this, it is far less lethal than originally predicted it is a, it is a rapidly transmittable disease but since most people have mild disease it means most people are going to just kind of go through this and guess what guess what happens after they get go through it they come out immune right or yes. probable immune so yes. what we what we're doing to some extent by 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 isolating everyone is we're slowing the development of community immunity to the disease and community immunity is important going forward that's what yeah, prevents the, the thing from coming back in the fall. Okay? All right. Yeah. And and it also means that we have completely taxed the healthcare system. So they no longer have a big reserve left if something really bad was to happen. What I mean so 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 I, I think, you know, none of us are critical of anyone, but we do believe yeah. that we can learn lessons here and these lessons should never let us go back to this again. And by the way, when people say the cure can't be worse than the, than the disease, you know, we have no idea how to calculate the impact of poverty and, and joblessness and depression. Sure. I mean, you know, too, by the way, what happens to somebody in solitary confinement in prison? right they get sick okay it's one of the most stressful things you can put people through isolation is causing is causing unknown amounts of health problems that we are going to have to deal with going forward and you know it's very sad because i remember at the beginning of the year seeing optimism and joy and a sense of a sense of a, a willingness to go out and take risks in building businesses in my community people were opening stores and restaurants and now these people are boarding them up. What's going to
1: happen? We're going to have them? more bankruptcies, more unemployment. And it's, it's truly a, a massive impact. Um, and honestly, uh, when, you're set, when this is said and done, I don't think we're going to have properly measured that. And uh, the challenge is going to be, how do we revitalize? It's gonna take, it, doesn't, it takes a while. It takes years after three or four months of impact to bring the economies back. The virus is not going away, right? The virus is still gonna be the environment. The It'll coronavirus right? is gonna be with us for years to come.
2: No, no, no. It's gonna be part of the environment forever. Exactly.
0: And it may have already been, and Bob isn't it true, it could have been here before six months ago. Like we're reading this piece on coronaviruses from six years ago, they said we'd have two-thirds of us would have it. So it's we're there's a lot of assumptions that we're making along the way with science. It needs to have assumptions that are tested, but we didn't test them in this environment. We made those assumptions, we ran our algorithms, and we went and again. Nobody had bad intent. All these politicians committing, you know, an emergency when there's one death in the in the state. They're just being told by everybody else this is what's going to grow to. I saw the governor of Ohio call a declaration of emergency, and he said we're going to have a hundred thousand in, uh, people infected here. And then, you know, the, one intelligent reporter said, there's only 1,120 infections in the whole country right now. How can you say 100,000 in your state? And he said, well, it's going to double from 100,000 in a few weeks, and we're going to have all these deaths. And so he said, well, i am being told that by the experts. He put his expert on, a doctor, a really great lady, and she apologized. He says, I was really exhausted this morning when I made these predictions. She literally says this on the air. And then she said afterwards, but, you know, other experts have been telling me it's about 1%, it'll keep doubling. So we have made these decisions that now it's going to be hard not to do. They all came from the best intent, protect our people. But we're getting to the real numbers they are a bit challenging. So how do you explain a place like Sweden that's got a population like that and they don't, they're, it's not out of control and they're not doing what we're doing here? Schools are open. Primary schools are open. Preschools are open with little children. Restaurants
2: are open. People in the streets. Yeah. I mean, listen, there, there were two approaches to this, right? One approach up front was to understand the possible bad side of this virus and calculate the, the worst case scenario, present it like that, but but deal with it as mid case or best case scenario, right? right. And, and take conservative measures. For example, you just pointed out the vast majority of people who do very poorly are the very old or the ones with comorbidities. So right off the bat, Selective isolation of the high-risk groups might have been a more conservative measure. Now, are younger people getting sick and dying? Yeah, absolutely. But the reality is, the way you approach a crisis like this is either is either hysteria, or rational or rational thinking. And it's very sad. I don't I don't blame Dr. Fauci. I do blame the media. I do blame the media because, as Peter taught me, you know. People are designed to pay 10 times more attention to bad news than good news. And so you give the media a little bit of bad news and they run with it, okay? And they sit there and they and they wallow in, in the panic they create. You know why? Because the more panic they create, people won't change the channel, right? They'll stay and they'll listen. So, so the truth of the matter is we did a disservice to the public by, by not fully informing them on how the numbers were arrived at, letting other experts opine. I hate when just one person is the sole source of information, right? We need to engage a lot of other folks. And by the way, there are people who try to get the, the word out and, and, and they're suppressed. In- well, the, the media suppressed
0: them. They, they shouted them down towards some of the solutions, as you know, Bob. And you know, I'm, not, I'm not here to attack the media either. I think the media's trying to do its job, but they're no longer designed to inform us it's too competitive. <laughs> now they got to startle us. And the only thing startles is something huge. And so they also believe it. They're not asking the questions. Okay, we have this many cases. And how many are actually hospitalized? Or how does this compare to flu deaths? None of those questions are being asked. It's just full force. It gets all the attention. And now there are people that they've heard it for week after week, day after day that it's like religion to them. They, they pretend it's science, but they say people are dying or you're promoting people, you know, doing things that are dangerous if you inform people that the numbers are different than they are. That's just not true. But let's, let's move to what this is really about. But the, the immune system is what it's really about. So let's move into, you know, what are the things that we do? There's lots of great solutions that are showing up right now for someone who is in a severe situation, usually with other challenges, as you've already pointed out, uh, pre-existing conditions. Let's talk about the solutions and then Bob, let's see if we can't uh, give people just a little bit of history about cellular medicine, all the way back to where you're kind of the father of it to some extent because of the research you did with the rats 30 years ago. So let's pick which direction everyone you want to grab first. Let's move in that direction. now. So hopefully, if you're listening, we've got you at least the question that it isn't a severe, extreme thing as you think, and it doesn't have to be in your life that way. If you understand the numbers, you still want to do things that take care of yourself but 90% of the people plus are not at severe risk and the numbers are tiny in context for everything else that happens. Right now, 1.35 million people will die this year in a car accident around the world. It's 3,200 people a day. None of us are saying people cause these car accidents, right? There's a little yellow line. Someone's driving 70 miles an hour, you're going there and we know every day somebody's gonna fall asleep, somebody's gonna be texting, someone's gonna be drunk and they come over and kill people every day, 3,200 a day we don't say we're never going to drive again let's put a you know let's put a moratorium on driving and why do we drive how do we drive knowing that someone can kill us every day it could happen any moment we do it by using faith not a religious term just we're born with a faith that says if i don't create certainty in myself in spite of all the things that are risky i have no life i have to stay home and not move which is kind of what we're doing right now so let's talk about either some of the solutions but maybe first before the solutions let's talk about sell your medicine for a moment, and your original studies and what you found, because this goes way beyond COVID, we're going to talk about COVID-19 and your solutions, but it really is the breakthrough that's happening in regenerative medicine. It's probably the most powerful change in medicine that's happened in a century.
1: The other thing to contextualize this again is if you feel like COVID-19 is going away and it's not as bad as it is, again, remember this is one of many pandemics. One of the questions that we're going to be asking Bob to address here, is how do we prevent this from happening again? How do we actually put in place the mechanisms to keep us safe? And one thing that we did learn from all this data is, you know, a hundred to one, older people are dying than younger people. It's not that the virus understands a person's age. It's that we understand your immune system. We're constantly being infected by viruses, by cancers, and your immune system is an incredible defense system that protects all of us from it. But as we age, as you'll hear, our immune system starts to degrade. And one of the incredible pieces of vision and work that Bob's been doing is how do we augment our immune system? So listen to what Bob says from the perspective of hope, not just for this situation, but to protect us in the decades to come. And also not
0: just from viruses, but
1: also what to do to regenerate and
0: rejuvenate your whole body. This doesn't have to be a survival issue. We have science today that can make you younger, stronger, more effective than before. You know, we're working on a book together on this whole regenerative medicine breakthroughs that are there. So Bob, just so people have context, let's shift to something that's a bit more uplifting. Hopefully people are uplifted to say it's not as bad as we thought. Still got to deal with the economic consequences. We're doing separate events on that, seminars for people, show them how to get their business going again as the world shifts. But let's talk about how you got on this road. I mean, you're you're a neurosurgeon. You've you've got an amazing background, but tell us what you did with RATS about 30 years ago that kind of started this journey.
2: Well, you know, Tony, um, uh, 30, 35 years ago, back when I was um, uh, working on my PhD uh, at Cornell, one of the areas I was very interested in was the development of of vascular disease. And uh, I was looking at the differences between old and young animals and why old animals develop much worse vascular disease than young animals. And uh, I was transplanting blood vessels from old into young and young into old. And it turned out that if I put an old blood vessel in a young animal, the old blood vessel was rejuvenated. It It acted young again. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was doing a stem cell experiment back then. I was actually allowing the the blood vessel to be renovated and remodeled by the stem cells coming from the young young environment. Now, fast forward, um, over 25 years ago, I got interested as a doctor taking care of head and spinal cord injury. um, I got very interested in in the emerging field of stem cell biology because I saw it as a potential tool to restore function in brain injured and spinal cord injured patients. Uh, at the time, uh, most of the work was focused around using cells from embryos. I recognized that for stem cells to have a meaningful place in medicine, someone was going to have to productize them. Someone was going to have to turn them into a pharmaceutical-like product that a doctor could write an order for and apply a dose just the way they do any other therapeutic. It was, it was at that time, my, um, my oldest daughter was in utero and uh, as a young surgeon coming down to look at the first ultrasound, uh, something dawned on me that hadn't in the past, which was although she was a peanut sized embryo, the placenta was already this big organ. and it dawned on me with a little bit of knowledge of stem cells and where they come from and a little bit of knowledge of of of, of uh, the physiology of the placenta. It turned out that i was I was convinced the placenta must play a role as the as the source of stem cells which participated in the development of my unborn child now. That got me interested enough to go look and chase it, and what happened was we found that the placenta was, in fact, nature's stem cell factory. At a time when you had to either destroy an embryo or harvest the leftovers of an abortion, every birth yields a waste product called the placenta that's, that's incinerated, has to be disposed of, but it was a great source of these biologic materials. Um, I started a company around that concept. That company soon identified that the placenta was a source of cells that could replace any other source of stem cells, and it turned into what was the fastest growing uh, uh, player in the cellular medicine space. Today, that company, Cellularity, was spun off of its parent company, Celgene, and now we have the largest portfolio of cellular medicines in the world. But what's interesting is, we're using the fundamental native biology of those stem cells, their, their unique universal donor characteristics, meaning that the placenta is a source of cells that can be administered to anyone without having to match them. And the placenta has unique uh, defense uh, capabilities in protecting the developing fetus from things like cancer or infectious diseases.
0: Would you make a note? For everyone to know what Bob told me this blew my mind, there is no situation, correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, where a mother with cancer is transferred to her baby. That's how powerful the placenta is. Is that correct?
2: It's it's so rare that it becomes an isolated report. The, The placenta defends the fetus from anything which would cause its demise. If you think about it, right? human beings devote nine months of reproductive energy to one offspring. It, evolution has selected for capabilities that protect that offspring at all costs. Because back when humans were living 25, 30 years, you didn't get a lot of shots at producing babies to replace yourself. And so, so that remarkable ability is 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 conserved and transferable in the cellular products. Among those among those unique properties, this ability for part of the immune system of the placenta and the newborn to actually defend against the transmission of cancer and infectious diseases was something we were fascinated by. We studied and we identified a unique natural killer cell. A natural killer cell is a specialized part of the immune system that is pre-programmed, if you will, to destroy potentially threatening cells, whether they're cancer cells, or, or bacteria or fungus or viruses or whatnot. Turns out that these placental natural killer cells target antigens, molecules that get expressed on the surface of cancer cells and virally infected cells. In the midst of our clinical trials in cancer, the COVID-19 crisis erupted. And although we always thought of the possibilities of taking these NK cells into infectious diseases, we saw an urgency to develop them for that purpose. We, we uh, did, the, did the underlying scientific work, filed a, an investigational new drug application with the FDA, have been granted permission to, t- to, to, to test this in patients, and we're out-treating patients as we speak, Tony, um,
1: with, uh, with COVID-19 with these placental NK cells. So we're very excited about that. Uh, what does treatment mean? What happens to a patient and what level is this? Uh, the people I, I know the answers obviously, but uh, treat you're being you're treating patients through an intravenous um, injection uh, transfusion of these natural killer cells to basically augment the natural killer cells they have in their current bloodstream. How sick are the patients you're likely to to treat? And then can you speak to the fact that this will be a therapy that can be on standby any place on the planet at any time it's needed?
0: And just along with that, Bob, if I can add on there, let people know that in China, most people don't know, the people that they are the most sick, those people in their 80s and 90s, this is one of the only treatments, am I correct, that was successful in turning those people and getting them back out of the hospital? Maybe a little background on that, and then tell us how you're treating them now.
2: So there are very promising reports out of China uh, in patients with serious COVID-19, including patients who are on ventilators, that cell therapy has worked. And, and let, me, let me preface things by saying this. Cellular therapy as a, as a way to augment or support or boost the immune response um, is a revolution in the treatment of cancer, okay? We now know we can take immune cells, engineer them to turn up some of their capabilities to target tumors, and they're very, very effective at, at, at supporting a patient's response against that, that particular malignancy. Um, I believe the same will apply in treating infectious diseases. And as Peter pointed out, what we're really doing here is we're boosting and supporting a patient's dysfunctional or deficient immune response by giving them reinforcements in the form of these NK cells from donor placentas that are produced in our manufacturing facility. The nice thing about this is it's administered via simple intravenous infusion. Putting an IV in can be done in a in an emergency room. It can be done in a in an infusion clinic. It can be done literally in a doctor's office. And the beauty is these cells um, boost; they they supplement your own body's immune response to a disease, which makes it a very convenient um, uh, and clinically um, uh, deployable methodology that fits into pretty much any healthcare system. Now, the nice thing about getting these cells out of the postpartum placenta, this waste material, is it's a it's an approach that's both scalable and ultimately will have an economics that are not going to be destructive to the healthcare system, okay? Explain explain a little bit why, Bob, in terms of the amount
0: you can utilize these, how you can do this. People will be saying, how many placentas are being donated to make this happen? Can you explain just for a second before you go on so they know why it's really scalable and why... The cost can be a lot less than a lot of the treatments, certainly a lot less than traditional cancer treatments.
2: So cellularity has pioneered the ability to um, what we call culture expand and mass produce cells from the placenta, which means that from one placental donor, we can produce many doses of cells for different therapeutic purposes. Keep in mind, in the world today, 130 million placentas, 130 million placentas are disposed of every year. Their, their waste material. So it's kind of an inexhaustible raw material, and since you can produce multiple uh, doses from one placenta, you know, we don't see that as being a rate limiter to deliver therapies for these sorts of diseases. Um, and because cellularity, like other companies in cellular medicine, recognize that at the dawn of our industry, the, the manufacturing process is as much the product as the cells, we're getting better and better and better at creating efficiencies and quality systems so that these cells can pre- be produced with very attractive economics. So,
1: Bob, let me, um, let me in, inject one thing that's, that's very important. I think if anybody who's listening, if you're pregnant or you know someone who is pregnant, right now, one of the things I think is a, almost a moral and ethical obligation is for you to bank your placenta. Uh, we've heard about cord blood banking, where you take umbilical cord blood and it's frozen. And if you ever should have a hemopoietic cancer or leukemia or something, that child, you can use radiation to wipe out their existing bone marrow and replenish it from their original bone marrow. But even better than that is the ability to keep the placental cells, both in this case, the stem cells, which are pluripotent, not at this moment yet, but in the near future, we're going to be able to regrow organs, love, liver, lungs, kidneys, hearts. So I have two nine-year-old boys. Nine years ago, I banked the cells from their placentas. The company is a division of Cellularity. And full disclosure, I'm a co-founder, vice chairman of Cellularity, and, and Tony is an investor in the company. Just make sure everybody knows that. But it's called Life Bank USA. And it's, it's a, a process that is simple and easy, and I just think it's something that most people don't know about. And if they did, they'd bank their placental cells.
0: I want to just mark out for people again, what we're really talking about is how to use a natural material created by God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, to stimulate the immune system to get back to its healthy form again. And so, as was said earlier, you've got cancer cells in your body right now, but you don't have cancer because your immune system is working well. You know, you've got streptococcus germs in the back of your throat. You don't have strep throat. You've got to have COVID-19 in really tiny amounts like we're seeing and not seeing any, in your immune system's fine. It's also why, even though today we're seeing cancers and diseases like this in young people as well, the majority, Bob, you can approach or mention about this, are happening older. These are age-old diseases. Now, we're doing things that are suppressing immune systems, even children today. But as you age, the immune system starts to get down. So we're sending the information in, not just to deal with a COVID-19 or to deal with a cancer, but also some people are doing it as a preparation for their nervous system to stay at its peak before any of these challenges happen. True,
2: Bob? So the reality is that um, no placenta should go to waste. Uh, Uh, We have the ability to process uh, and, and derive cells from the placenta and mass produce them. And the beauty is that cells... Um, can be cryopreserved, put in liquid nitrogen, and they can be available uh, decades later, uh, and they can still have value many decades later. So um, I, I'm, I'm with you guys. I think it's a, it's one of the great resources and, and the opportunity to collect and process and bank um, is, is a great thing. More importantly, is every placenta, even if it's donated, can be the source of material to produce life, life-saving products uh, like the ones we're talking about. But to, But to get back to the really the, the, the kind of the, the heart of what we're talking about today. Um, cellular immunotherapy as a way to treat and defeat viral infections, I, I believe we are going to be able to demonstrate that this is a rational, logical way to go about supporting patients like COVID-19 patients. Um, hopefully COVID-19 is a self-limited problem and we will be beyond this very shortly. But as Peter pointed out, if this is a practice pandemic, we need to have tools available instantly if this ever rears its ugly head again. And it may rear its ugly head as a reappearance of the same virus, as the appearance of a mutated version of the virus, or a brand new novel virus that may have worse characteristics than this one. That being said, cellular immunotherapy, because virtually all virally infected cells are targetable because they all express very similar molecules that make them visible to these natural killer cells might be the one-size-fits-all approach to dealing with these types of pandemics. We have to do the work to prove it. But but it's extremely promising, and, and we believe it's very much worthy of the work that's going on right now to c- create unequivocal data in support of it. Um, the, the... Maybe
0: maybe the silver lining in all of this is to see, you know, that the FDA and, and you know everyone is having to open up to new things, and it may be, speed up the capacity for cellular therapy to be really maximized, measured, and utilized. So we don't just prevent what happens in the future, but we continue to make people healthier along the way on on the a, a normal path of life.
2: And you know, Tony, you know, I think the three of us um, recognize that. There's there's always a solution to a problem, and and rather than rather than throw your hands up and surrender because the problem appears to be uh, you know beyond our current capabilities, um, I believe we have to enlist the the ingenuity and innovativeness and inventiveness of this great country uh, to solve the problem. We're already seeing. That great innovations are having putting a dent in this disease. Let me let me bring one thing up, hydroxychloroquine, okay? Yeah, I was All gonna right? hope you're
0: gonna bring that up. Okay. Thank
2: you. I mean, let's face it, okay? A smart doctor who's very, very skilled in treating infectious diseases, just was a good observer. You know, he recognized that that this particular drug, which is a generic drug, it costs virtually nothing. Um, it's been around for 50, 60 years, it's been used in tens of millions of people. Um, It just turns out that it was effective in his observation at reducing the time these patients were sick and getting them off ventilators. So he brought it up, and he combined it with an antibiotic, and the results appeared to be even better. Now, Now, first and foremost, that single observation at the early part of this crisis should have been celebrated, Okay. And it should not have been dismissed as, well, there's no double-blinded, placebo-controlled studies that prove that it works. Listen, here's the bottom line, okay? That observation by itself could have been the source of a cooperative effort to to tease out what was really at play here. So let me give you a couple of add-ons behind all this, all right? It turns out that go look at an international map of the incidence of COVID-19. It's very striking that in certain zones of the world, there's a very, very a horrifically low incidence of the disease. It just turns out that those are the malaria-prone countries. And it just turns out that many people in those countries are on these medications chronically. Okay, that was a little data chunk, a little factoid that should have been stored away. The other factoid was that people who have lupus, who get treated with hydroxychloroquine, appeared not to be getting the disease. Now, you see, in, in the absence of the time and the resources to do a, a controlled, a well-done, well uh, um, double-blinded study, in the absence of the time to do it, and this is an emergency, this isn't, this isn't the regular world, You would have thought you would have thought that people would have embraced this and would have worked together as a global community to put the data pieces together to support use. Now, by the way, by the way, okay, although the drug wasn't approved for the treatment of covid-19 and by the way, there there wasn't any drug approved for covid-19 because nobody knew what covid-19 was. Okay, but but the the regulatory communities, they regulate approval of drugs they don't regulate the prescribing behavior of doctors they provide recommendations and guidelines and so on but you know doctors didn't go to medical school and years and years of training, and study pharmacology, and study physiology and bio- biochemistry, so they all they have to do is read a recipe and deliver on that recipe. They're there to make medical judgments. So when doctors started making medical judgments to use this, and they were coming away saying, you know what, I believe it. I've listened to no, no less than 100 doctors who have put this to use and will swear to it that it worked. Now, what I worry about is, by being less than than um, inquisitive, supportive, uh, and and celebrating that early observation, did we dissuade people from using something that might have saved lives? Okay, did we dissuade people from potentially finding a way to use it prophylactically? Okay, you know uh, hydroxychloroquine in very low dose prophylactically appears to protect the people in these in these regions where malaria is prevalent, uh, and by the way the doctors and healthcare workers on the front line, they really needed someone to find something that gave them an extra margin of protection. So listen, I don't want to speculate as to what the underlying reason for that was, but I do think it was a disservice. And I do think that, you know, listen, um, I, I think our government has done a really, really remarkable job in, in, in all ways. Um, but, but the fact that one person's opinion because the, the, the public doesn't agree with the general principles or, or, or policies of the individual, they shouldn't be dismissive of something that could have been so impactful in a disease
1: like this. That's how I feel. Let me add something onto that because it's, it's not just the hydroxychloroquine. Uh, there's something going on that I think is important to note. And again, for those of you looking for hope and optimism in all of this, Let's take, let's take some hope and optimism from the following fact. For the human race, there has never been, ever, in recorded history, a single enemy that the entire planet has taken aim at. And by my calculations, there's somewhere between 100 million and 200 million physicians, nurses, scientists, engineers, technicians, all laser-like focused on addressing the problem. And what we're seeing right now in week, whatever this is of the, uh, of the pandemic in the United States or in the world, if we, if we look at, uh, at, at China as, as day zero, which it may not have been, what we're seeing is only four months of uh, experimental solutions coming to the market. We're seeing the early trickle of antivirals and therapeutics and diagnostics and new ideas what we're not seeing is that in doctors' offices, in ERs, in science labs, thousands—probably tens of thousands—around the world, people not asking for permission but trying stuff, experimenting. Right? We're Just talking with—that's
0: right?
1: the way it's done. That's what we humans do best. And I've got amazing, you know, researchers in in CRISPR-Cas9 uh, gene editing. Uh, technologies and gene therapies in across the board so what what we're seeing is in i talk about the deceptive period of exponential growth and then the disruptive period we're now seeing the deceptive period of of solutions coming over the transom like that one experiment that came out of out of france on the uh, hydroxychloroquine and the ZPAC coming together my guess is that we will see hundreds right i mean how how much energy Bob and the entire science team at cellulite to put into the natural killer cells. There are hundreds and thousands. So you know, hold hope that we are going to not only address this, we're going to crush this.
0: I agree. I couldn't agree with you further. By the way, for those who don't know it, Peter is an MD, besides being a rocket scientist and entrepreneur, everything else he is, he's also an MD as well. And so but the difference in both of these men is that they are so incredibly focused on finding solutions before the problem happens. You know, it's like you see somebody, you know, the old metaphor of a doctor is they work their tails off. They go to school, they go through all this process. And now they see somebody in the lake over here or in the river and they're screaming like they're, you know, they're dying. And they jump in, they fight out, they save them, pull them out, give them out, them out save them. And they get out and two more drop are now all of a sudden. They jump out and save the two. By the time they know it, by the they save two, there's four. Then there's eight. They don't have time to go upstream and see who's throwing them in. And and these two men are going upstream and seeing who's throwing them in and saying, what do we do to deal with this way upstream instead of a reaction? Because, listen, you play a video game against a child, they win. It's not because they're smarter, quicker, or faster. It's because they played this game before. They're able to anticipate. They know the road ahead. And what these two men are doing, incredible researchers and doctors and, and dear friends of mine, is they're on a cutting edge of what can make this happen. Bob, is there anything we've not covered that you want people to know about overall about COVID-19 and or just about cellular medicine, what's coming and what they should be aware of so that they can have not only feel more comfortable, but perhaps even more excited about the quality of life they can have long-term based
2: on the breakthroughs that are happening now, not 30 years from now. Right. So, you know, I'm, I'm convinced <clears throat> that the psychology of this crisis um, had a tremendous amount to do with the the early panicked responses we've seen, but I'm actually getting the sense as I'm as I'm looking around that people are beginning to realize, you know what, um, maybe this isn't nearly as as horrific as we thought. Maybe now we need to concentrate on recovering and focusing and fueling efforts to come out of this better than before. So you know, couple of couple of interesting examples: um, short term pain often yield long-term gain, and, and some of the gains we're going to have, I believe, will be in the understanding that infectious diseases, we shouldn't be treating them with antibiotics and antivirals that are, that are custom designed for one, uh, one pathogen or another. We need to come up with a solution that, across the board, protects against infectious disease. You already said it, Tony, and so did you, Peter. It's all about the immune system, okay? There are people you know who never get sick. Right? They never get sick because they just happen to have, because of genetics or, or lifestyle or whatnot, they have an immune system that is on constant alert. They have the best military you know on the planet when it comes to defending against pathogens and so on. Let's take advantage of this opportunity to better understand how cellular immunotherapy, something that's already revolutionized in the treatment of cancer, may change the shape and reshape how we treat infectious diseases in the future. And if that happens, we solve Peter's problem, which is pre- preparedness for the next pandemic. And we also, we also will transform the tools doctors have that will keep people from ever having these massive super infections, uh, resistant microorganisms. We've all heard of MRSA and things like that. So if we come, I think we can come out of this better than when we entered into it. And look, I've devoted 25 years of my life to cellular medicine. I can tell you that these tools astound me every day. They're nature's repair kit, nature's toolkit, and uh, we're going to deploy them. We're very grateful that the FDA has been working so hard to help groups like ours prove, do the work and prove that
1: these products are safe and effective. And I'm optimistic about where we're going to come out of this. Bob, let me just add, uh, because it's important to note under your leadership, uh, cellularity has built uh, what is what are the world-class manufacturing the uh, better part of a hundred million dollars be able to actually uh, take the placenta and take out the natural killer cells, the stem cells, uh, create medicines and therapeutics out of that at scale where you have the ability to produce what will be millions of doses that could be frozen on standby, both in the military at our hospitals wherever they're needed, uh, and these actually, when they're frozen, can last decades. So there's a potential to be ready in the future, and I, I think it's worth also mentioning, since the three of us are focused on this, um, that we've been working uh, on a program called uh, Fountain Fountain Life, uh, nice. that will be a way that that the average consumer can get access to these stem cells? I know we have a number of Fountain Life um, uh, friends and family uh, who are going to be watching this and viewing this, and it's how do we deliver those stem cells that are uh, the, you know, the original boot disc for the human body to be able to rejuvenate and revitalize our physiology? I don't know if you want to mention that work a little bit. Yeah, I mean,
2: we're, we're, we we know that um, that stem cells and cellular products can be used to restore um, the regenerative engine in an individual and allow them uh, to respond to illness, disease, injury the way they did when they were young and youthful. Um, and I'm very excited, you know, Tony alluded to up front um what what cellular medicine can do for orthopedic joint and 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 soft tissue injuries you know the the world kind of knows that this is here and coming we're still working through the process of getting these approaches through the the rigorous programs necessary to prove safety and efficacy and so on but i'm again extremely optimistic that what we're going through today and what's happening around the world in treating patients with degenerative diseases and so on will change the tool set doctors have in the cu- in the next generation, in the generation we've just entered into, so that people actually live healthier, longer, and more and higher performance lives going forward. I do wanna bring one thing up because when you bring up the term stem cells, it's
0: kind of the wild west in the United States. I remember Bob, before I met you, there's all these different types of stem cells. They wanna take my own fatty tissue and convert it. And, and then you gave me a quick education. So before we go, since you know, cellular therapy is so important. And there are some people that knowing the pandemic or there's a solution for something as big as somebody in the hospital who's on a ventilator is available with NK cells and that it's going there, it'd be nice for them to understand what's available now so they don't also get pulled into something that isn't effective. You and I both know for elbows, shoulders, things like my entire rotator cuffs, I mean, to have not three, six months, and some people after three or six months, they still can't lift their shoulder above their arm. For me to have perfect use with the kind of demand you know I make you know this you've seen the studies on my body jumping a thousand times in a day and you're in an audience of you know 12 hours you know uh, burning you know eleven thousand five hundred calories in a period of time of 12 hours you've seen those studies and you've seen the impact the stem cells have had but can you take just one second before we go and give people an understanding of the different types of choices so they don't get pulled into fake science because that's part of the problem some people hear stem cells ah they think it's the same as doing PRP or something else. I understand the potency is different depending upon the source. Can you touch on that just for a second before we wrap up?
2: So you know, Tony, I'm I'm very vested in the technology around stem cells that are recovered from the postpartum placenta because these cells are young. Uh, they've gone through nature's quality control process, um, uh, and they and they basically have the uh, the biological. Attributes necessary to restore the functionality. Uh, They have anti-inflammatory properties and pro-regenerative properties. Um, We're working. We're working diligently to demonstrate that in a whole series of clinical indications. Newborn-derived cells have a lot of advantages over cells derived from an adult. Such as from adipose tissue or from bone marrow or whatnot, um, and as I mentioned before, they're highly scalable. They can be produced so that they're off the shelf, on demand, long shelf life products, one size fits all. And so that's those are the kind of cells I think people need to be looking for because they're they're reliable, um, and we believe that. Ultimately, people are going to want to go back and be treated more than once, and they're going to want to have the consistency of a pharmaceutical-like product. So so I think that's the platform of technology that has the greatest merit. But there are going to be people who want to go places where they can have their own adipose tissue removed and cells derived from that. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of reports, and there's even some data supporting that that's useful. Uh, but at the end of the day, regenerative medicine... Using either cells or cell byproducts um, is 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 coming into prime time. People people are going to have lots of choices in front of them. You you need to find places which are using cells produced under rigorous controls and quality standards, and you have to work with reputable groups that that are either either in an investigational stage of development or they're working in a jurisdiction where it's permitted.
0: Because the problem is our, our, our stem cells in the average person drop off a cliff after about 30 as a percentage. So if you're taking them from yourselves, cells, you're not getting the same potency, obviously, than if you're taking brand new cells that are coming from the placenta as well. It's an important part to notice in terms of impact. Ma, before we leave you, Peter, any final
2: thoughts?
1: I just want to bring it back to the key messages we have here. Uh, for me, I think one of the things that people need more than ever is hope and optimism. Hope and optimism because uh, it's been hard for so many individuals who've lost their jobs, lost their savings, bankrupting their companies and so forth. Hope and optimism comes on uh, a couple of points. Number one, uh, what we're seeing and believe and trending towards is that the mortality rate is nowhere near as bad as predicted. Number two, we're gonna see a tsunami of different solutions that are coming. Antivirals, therapeutics, vaccines, uh, that are coming. I run a, a, a global um, uh, prediction engine, and right now the prediction is that we'll see a we'll see a vaccine before the end of the year, maybe uh, mid December. That would be great going into the next flu season, at least on the northern hemisphere. Uh, the other thing uh, that's important is that you know if you look at every economic crisis over time, um, there is a massive rebound, uh, and we'll see. You know, a lot of the companies that were just hanging on, employing people just barely but not thriving, they're going to, as we see in every Darwinian evolution, they're going to die and go away. But like we saw out of 2008, we saw WhatsApp and Venmo and uh, Uber and Airbnb and the invention of massive amounts. So if you're at home and you're in this global quiet period, besides spending time meditating, eating right, Uh, sleeping well, exercising, which are things that you can do for immune system right now, got to mention those. This is the time to be inventive, to be inventive about, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, how do I create digital businesses? How do I find problems out there? Because this last three months is going to accelerate the future. What we've been doing here digitally is going to bring us faster and faster into this in this decade ahead. So, there are reasons for hope. There are reasons for optimism. Uh, and I see, uh, I see those all the time. So I want to share that, Tony, with everyone watching us here today. And with you, Bob, I love you, brother. You're brilliant.
0: <laughs> Thank you both. It's, hey, look, we're going through a bit of a winter, but winter is followed by spring. And you can feel the beginnings of spring starting to crack as you start to see the numbers flatten and come down, a little less fear in people, people reevaluating, seeing real numbers and all these mass drive of solutions that are moving us forward. So let's bring forward together the opportunities are greater than they've ever been in human history. We keep our intelligence. We are resilient species. Let the fear aside, focus on the solutions. Thank you, Bob, for bringing forth some of the most important solutions, not just for COVID-19, but for we as a human race moving forward to have healthier, stronger, and, and more high performance lives, ones we can really enjoy. It's not just length of life, but quality of life, there, self therapy can make a big difference for. Peter, thank you for being my dear friend and partner. God bless you all, and
2: uh, we'll see you soon. Live strong, live with passion, and God bless.